Welcome to Biographical Bites from Bala, number two for November 2021. Harold Herring Conair and the Cats and Jammer Kids. episode of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University, volunteer tour guide at Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill cemeteries, and volunteer podcaster. Instead of taking a big topic like baseball players or physicians and including people from both cemeteries, this is something different. I choose one person from West Laurel Hill Cemetery, and then I do a deep dive on their life, mostly from contemporaneous newspapers. And then I add some other history whenever it's appropriate. Now, before I start, a reminder that West Laurel Hill Cemetery now closes at 5 p.m. and will do so until the spring. There is a Sacred Spaces and Storied Places tour on Saturday, 20 November at 1 p.m. But you have to get your ticket in advance from the laurelhillcemetery.org slash events. Also with Christmas coming up, a membership in the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries makes a great stocking stuffer. If you're a member, you get a $5 discount every event you get members only tours and online presentations you get a special annual bonus episode of all bones considered laurel hill stories and a 10 percent discount from the gift shop both in person and online find out more from the laurelhillcemetery.org slash support slash membership another great christmas gift arrange a private tour for your family or your group you can even request me as your tour guide if you want to enough intro let's hear about harold h knair and the cats and jammer kids When the comic strip The Cats and Jammer Kids debuted in William Randolph Hearst's Sunday Supplement for the New York Journal on 12 December 1897, it is unlikely that anyone would have predicted that it would still be syndicated in newspapers and magazines 124 years later in 2021. If you don't see it in your local newspaper, go to the Comics Kingdom website, and sure enough, there it is. I checked it today www.comicskingdom.com slash catsandjammer-kids Harold Herring Knair K-N-E-R-R who was interred at West Laurel Hill Cemetery was the strip's artist for 35 years from 1914 until his death in 1949 when you look at his family history becoming a cartoonist is probably one of the last things you would expect Harold's father, Dr. Calfanus Brobst Calvin Conair, was a physician at Penn who sat on the Sabert Commission, which had been organized by Shakespearean scholar Horace Howard Furness to investigate spiritualism. 
At age 92, he was the oldest graduate of Hahnemann Hospital Medical School when he died in 1940. His uncle, Levi Kinnair, was also a physician trained at Hahnemann. His brother, Bayard, six years his senior, yet another physician. And another brother, Horace, became a metallurgist. His mother was Melita H. Herring, whose father, Constantine Herring, 1800 to 1880, was an early proponent of homeopathic medicine in America and a founder of Hahnemann Hospital. In 1834, Constantine had caused quite a stir in his neighborhood when he brought a fir tree from New Jersey into his house at Christmas time and then decorated it with fruits, candies, gifts, and candles, just like he'd done growing up in Germany. This is now acknowledged as the first Christmas tree in Pennsylvania. You can hear more about Constantine in All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, podcast number 17, American Medical Fathers, part one. Harold Kinnair was born in Bryn Mawr in 1882. After a brief time in public schools, his parents sent him to Episcopal Academy for two years and then to the Pennsylvania Museum and School of Industrial Art, where he discovered, as he said, I was not Michelangelo. PMSIA, also referred to as the School of Applied Art, opened in the centennial year of 1876 as both a museum and a teaching institution. Classes began in a building at 312 North Broad Street and soon expanded into the old Franklin Institute, which is now the closed Philadelphia History Museum at 15 South 7th Street. In 1893, PMSIA acquired a complex of buildings at Broad and Pine, vacated by the Pennsylvania Institution for the Deaf and Dumb. In 1938, the two institutions split. The museum became the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and the school stayed the PMSIA, but in 1964, it renamed itself the Philadelphia College of Art. After further name changes, the school is now the University of the Arts. When growing up at the end of the 19th century, Harold decided that he wanted to be an aeronaut. In other words, he wanted to fly before there were airplanes. When he was interviewed in 1922, he told the story, My first experience as an aerialist was on a roof, a hip to fare. The roof was next to my father's home with a galvanized iron gutter at each of the eaves to catch the rain. It was fun to sit at the peak of the hip and slide down the state roof, catching with my heels on the gutter. I really had two chances before falling the 30 feet to the ground. If I missed with my heels, as I sometimes did, I could catch with my hands, which I always did. I never fell. But I was compelled to stop this childish prank by parental authority. Grown persons are always interfering with the amusement of children. Then I transferred my talents to the dumbwaiter. I would pull myself up to the top of the house and turn loose, thus getting a swift ride to the bottom of the shaft, accompanied by a terrific bump. Again, my parents became nervous and I was forced to desist. Then I got a glider. It was great. He talked about how he and his friends had some of the first gliders in the country, which they would attach to automobiles by ropes and fly like kites when the autos of the mid-1890s sped up to their maximum speed of about 20 miles per hour. Going back to Canaration, 
The gliders were followed by balloons. Those were days of real sport. Once the crew I trained with reached a height of 13,000 feet by the simple process of throwing overboard too much sand by mistake. He describes how they shot up from 2,000 feet after inadvertently dumping a 40-pound sandbag ballast. Then their descent was so rapid that they avoided the crash only by heaving everything else out of the basket as the balloon deflated and then skidded through a herd of startled cows before they all came to a safe stop. But he continued working on his drawings. He sold several to Philadelphia newspapers, including realistic sketches of gravestones from the city's oldest graveyard for $3 each. By 1901, when he was 19 years old, he was drawing color comic strips for three of Philadelphia's newspapers, many of them one-shot features. Now, the art of cartooning was in its very early days. Many of the early strips featured artists who were fine illustrators. The initial drawings were black and white. The colors were added by the publishers later. While the origins of comic strips can be traced to the 1820s, it was not until the great newspaper wars between William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer during the 1890s that they started to flourish in America. I talked about an earlier American cartoonist, Arthur Burdett Frost, in a video podcast on YouTube called A.B. Frost and His Family. The first popular newspaper comic strip was The Yellow Kid, which appeared in Pulitzer's New York World and then Hearst's New York Journal from 1895 to 1898. But four years earlier, in 1892, James Swinnerton's Little Bears and Tigers became continuing comic characters in Hearst's San Francisco Examiner. The Yellow Kid, by the way, gave its name to the pejorative phrase yellow journalism, stories that were sensationalized for the sake of selling papers. In 1897, German immigrant Rudolf Dirks introduced a strip starring two German-American boys, Hans and Fritz, and their mama. He called it the Katzenjammer Kids. It was based on an 1865 German comic strip called Max and Moritz. Katzenjammer is a German term, meaning the yowling of cats. It's also a euphemism for a hangover. Dirk's early illustrations were rather crude. Even the word balloon had not yet evolved. In 1902, Dirk's introduced Der Captain, a boarder, or perhaps a live-in companion for Mama. In 1905, he introduced the Inspector, an officer of the school system. It was wildly popular. Some modern art scholars even claim that Pablo Picasso's love of the cats and jammers led to his early breakthroughs in cubism on Portrait of Gertrude Stein, 1905-1906, and Le Demoiselle d'Avignon in 1907. Meanwhile, in Philadelphia, Kerr was now contributing comics to five different newspapers, including Mr. George and Wifey, Scary Williams, Wooly Willie at Little Chief Rain in the Face, and Zoological Snapshots. One of his characters followed Scott Joplin's introduction of Ragtime at the 1904 St. Louis Fair. The strip was called The Irresistible Rag They Must Dance. 
and featured a grossly caricatured African-American musician who delighted in playing catchy ragtime music on his flute and forcing people to dance. It's a little weird. His biggest success was De Finchheimer Twins, which was a blatant ripoff of the Cats and Jammer Kids. Bad d- German dialect and all. It featured the mischievous Johann N. Yeke. Kinnear penned this one in the Inquirer for more than 10 years, until 1914. That's the year that Rudolf Dirks left William Randolph Hearst for the promise of a better salary under Joseph Pulitzer. This was an unusual move, since cartoonists usually went the other way, leaving Pulitzer for Hearst. Hearst sued, and in a highly unusual court decision, he retained the rights to the name Cats and Jammer Kids, while Dirks retained the rights to the characters. Hearst promptly hired Philadelphian Harold Kinnear to draw his own version of the strip. Dirks initially renamed his version Hans and Fritz. Anti-German sentiment during the Great War forced him to change his title to The Captain and the Kids. And for the next six decades, two versions of effectively the same comic strip were distributed by rival syndicates in U.S. newspapers. Dirk's version of The Captain and the Kids ran until 1979. This would sort of be the equivalent of two similar comic strips called Doonesbury and B.D. and Boopsie, running in competing newspapers for more than half a century with exactly the same premise, the same characters, and similar artwork. Now, Hans and Fritz, one blonde, one brunette, were not mischievous like Dennis the Menace or Calvin. They were downright malevolent, and their audience loved them that way. Mama, a plump Fraulein with her dark hair and a triple bun, was constantly flustered. The pipe-smoking Der Captain, dressed in cartoon sea togs, had a full-face beard and a short temper. He often had his foot propped on a stool to soothe his aching gout. Naturally, his throbbing toe became the target of the boys. Other characters were added through the years. Miss Twiddle, Der Captain's shifty friends, the Herring Boys, with a name echoing Harold's own middle name. Cousin Rollo was even meaner than the kids and kept trying to get them into trouble, but his schemes always backfired. His sister Lena, who is always sucking on a lollipop, can be depended upon to make clear that he brought it upon himself. The Cats and Jammer kids were such a cultural phenomenon that they became a traveling stage show for children, playing across the United States and Canada for many years. There were Cats and Jammer animated cartoons, Cats and Jammer dolls, and jigsaw puzzles, and cereal box cutouts, and comic books. They even made it onto a 1995 U.S. postage stamp, the 32-cent variety, as satire into everything from Tijuana Bible 8-pagers to National Lampoon. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, Playboy magazine published a satirical comic called The Krautzenbummer Kids. It was by their cartoonist Eldon Dedini. Kinnear took advantage of another feature of early cartoons. The Sunday comics were a big deal. The comic supplement usually ran 8 or even 16 pages, and many Sunday comics were permitted to take up the entire page. 
a number of artists produced what were called toppers, cartoons that would run on the top third of a page so the main feature could have the bottom two-thirds. Staying with his German roots, Canary started publishing Dinglehoofer and His Dog in 1926. It showed the adventures of a kindly German-American bachelor, much like Canary, who never married, and his curious little pup, Adolf. Eight years into the strip, an orphan boy named Ted Pole Dugan joined them, calling the lead character Mr. Dingy. In 1936, events in Germany again affected America's comic pages, and the name Adolf was no longer considered appropriate. So, dog Adolf got adopted by a farm family, and a new dachshund puppy named Schnapsy joined the cast. There was also a family cook and a maid named Lily. This strip also ran until Canary's death. Canary's private life was just that, private. He had moved to New York City, and he lived in a hotel apartment at the Blackstone Hotel, 50 East 58th Street, for the last few decades of his life. He never married. His name was rarely, if ever, in the newspapers, other than on his comic strips. A search of several newspaper archives comes up with almost nothing. He slipped his self-portrait into a single-panel cartoon that was dated 14 August 1924. He sits forlorn, head in hand, at his drawing board, with a tear running down his left cheek. The Cats and Jammer kids are to his left, and they're looking worried, but next to a smiling turtle. The title of the square is, My Best Laugh Story. The kids are asking in their typical horrid German accent, Vi de Veeps, Skipper. His thought balloon laments to think that I have never heard my favorite story before. Now and then he answered fan mail, including a letter from a woman reader who asked him to send one of the six fictional pups born to Schnapsy. Along the way, he developed some unnamed heart problems. On 8 July 1949, a hotel maid using a passkey found him dead on the floor of his bedroom in his pajamas. He was 66 years old, and his only surviving relatives were his brother Horace and his sister Mildred. His remains were interred in the Herring family plot, West Laurel Hill Cemetery, Washington Section, Lot 330. Many artists later, his comic strip lives on 72 years after his death. It is the longest-running comic in the history of the United States. Next month, in the December edition of Biographical Bites from Bala, I will tell you of a woman so beautiful that she turned down more than 50 marriage proposals before she just stopped counting. Her aunt, the premier portrait painter in the country, painted her nine times. During the Great War, she traveled Germany with her first husband and published a diary when she returned to the States. During the Second World War, she had a national radio show encouraging women's involvement in the war effort, and she took on a new name. And during her second marriage, she and her husband held one of the most exclusive music salons in New York City. She is Amy Ernesta Drinker Bullet Bow Barlow, radio name Commando Mary, without a doubt one of the most interesting people I have encountered in my cemetery research.
Whistler Hill Cemetery is located on Belmont Avenue in Ballack-Kenwood. It is open 365 days a year to walkers and bicyclists. There's free parking at the main office and at the Bell Tower. Take photos, walk your dog, admire the stained glass and more than 250 mausoleums, and enjoy the pleasures of an arboretum and a nature preserve. The December edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, Smile for the Birdie, photographic pioneers at Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill, will be out at the end of the month. Stay safe, stay well, and maybe I'll see you at the cemetery.